News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, sometimes in your job, you probably have to think long-term, right? Well, how far ahead is that? What about 12 years? Do you have to think that far ahead? Well, the Euclid satellite has successfully been launched this weekend by the European Space Agency. It has a 12-year mission. What is it doing? It's mapping the universe in 3D, which sounds pretty amazing, actually. More than 2,000 scientists are involved in this, including Canadians. And joining us now is one of them, actually, UBC professor Dr. Douglas Scott. Dr. Scott, thanks for being here. Hi there. Tell us all about Euclid. How long has this been in the works? Oh, I I mean, at least 15 or 20 years for some people in the project. Not quite as long for me, but still, still many, many years we've been looking forward to this launch, which just happened successfully. I know, that sounds great. So what is so special about Euclid? What is it going to do? So Euclid is going to image the sky and also take spectra of the sky for a huge fraction of the sky. So you should think of this as sort of Hubble Space Telescope quality images, but instead of for tiny little areas, for a huge chunk of the sky. And with these data, we're going to try and learn about the nature of the dark matter and dark energy that dominate the universe and are completely mysterious and not understood. That's okay. So that sounds pretty impressive. So by doing it, by imaging this in 3D, then will that help you see things better? Yeah. So the, the 3D imaging lets you disentangle the gravitational lensing. So that's the fact that gravity bends light through Einstein's theory of general relativity. So you can see where the dark matter is, even though it's dark. So we can try and understand the properties of the dark matter that are that is most of the matter in the universe. And then there's also a thing called dark energy, which, I mean, even although it has a name, dark energy, we don't know what it is. The dark energy makes the universe accelerate by, by studying this 3D image uh, and the sort of scale of the clumping of galaxies in that image. We can hope to understand what the dark energy is. And when when will we be able to see results? Like how soon do you think Euclid will be able to provide some images? Yeah, so the Euclid will release data on a sort of yearly basis and you know the data will be completely public eventually. Um, but the first things that you're going to see is around November. So in just a few months, there'll be sort of very early images, a bit like there was with James Webb Space Telescope. There'll be some early images to show how well it's working. So you should expect in November to see the first pictures uh, from Euclid to get a sense of, of you know what the telescope is capable of. That's going to be pretty exciting, isn't it, Dr. Scott? I mean, there'll be a lot of excited scientists around that time. <laughs> And a lot of Canadians who are involved in this will be following very closely. Yeah, how did that happen then? Is this a cooperative thing from all different countries? Like, how did Canadians get involved? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of countries involved, but it's it's run by the Europeans, the European Space Agency. Canada really got involved because Euclid, to interpret this 3D map, you, you also need data in different colors, which can be taken from the ground. Uh, Canadians provided data from the Canada-France-Hawaii telescope. Um, and as a result of that partnership, we were invited to be f- you know, full members of the Euclid collaboration. So we can take part in all the scientific studies, et cetera. It's, it's, it's a great deal for Canada, actually, and we're very excited to be part of the project. I guess we underestimate sometimes, Dr. Scott, I feel like how important the Hubble 
space telescope has been to our understanding of the universe. Is this going to be like another leap forward? Yeah, it's it's a it's a survey instrument. So instead of targeting individual objects that you know people want to study and seeing them in great detail, it does a huge survey of the sky. More than a third of the sky will be imaged at sort of Hubble Space Telescope quality. And it's very complementary to the James Webb Space Telescope where where again you follow up sort of individual objects in great detail. Euclid will be able to find objects for James Webb to follow up because it's such a wide survey. So in addition to doing this dark universe stuff, uh, we're going to see the bright universe. So we're going to find all sorts of interesting new objects in the sky. Is there nervousness involved in this too? Because you think you're not going to know for months if all this work was was successful. We were super nervous during the launch. I'm, I'm sure all the team members were the same. But it launched successfully on a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket from Florida. Um, it, everything seems to have gone well so far. There's, you know, there's a very long series of milestones. Lots of things can go wrong yet, but so far, uh, so far, it's all gone extremely well. So we're uh, very optimistic at this point. And for you, and for your work, what do you want to see here? What do you hope Euclid will show you? Uh, I would love to learn something new about the dark matter and dark energy. Uh, you know, to be honest, it, it's completely unclear whether we will, because we, we don't know what these things are. Uh, but it would be great if we genuinely learned something about the properties of the dark matter, for example. Uh, but at the same time, we take tons of images of, the, of a large fraction of the sky. And there will be things that are exciting that we haven't even thought of. So the discovery potential for Euclid is amazing. And that's that's the thing I really find exciting. Is that, we don't know what we're going to discover. Well, that's the thing that I guess if you're in your particular line of work all over the world, there must be a lot of excitement about that. A lot of excitement. So there's there's more than 2,000 scientists. But it, but as I said, Canada gets to play a part in that. And many you know, young scientists, graduate students, and so on across Canada are are primed to start dealing with those Euclid data as soon as they arrive. So is this the time then, Dr. Scott, like you have a theory and this, you will see Euclid will be able to help you figure out if your theory is right or if you're going to move in another direction? Yeah. So for for the dark energy, for example, the, the simplest theory is that it's just that, that, you know, vacuum has energy density. If I give you a box of nothing, it turns out there's energy in it. And if that energy is constant with time, then it's very hard to learn anything about it. So the hope for dark energy is that it varies a little bit with time. And if we can figure that out and measure it, then that connects to some fundamental theories and maybe we'll you know, make this big leap and connect to quantum gravity or the theory of everything or something. And there'll be some connection between dark energy and some bigger picture. So that that that's entirely possible. We, you know, we wouldn't put money on that happening. Uh, but Euclid has the potential to do that. So that's that's extremely exciting. Yeah. How would it vary over time? So so the idea would be that it's some kind of field that fills the universe and and it's dynamical. So it's not it's not constant all the time. And if you can find out how it's not constant, uh, that may allow you to connect to some fundamental physics theory. That's the and there's there's a thousand theories out there for what it could be. So we could uh, discriminate between those and figure out whether one of them's correct. 
So interesting. Okay, so then do scientists all over the world, you you have your like long list of things. How do you prioritize what Euclid is going to look at? Uh, So basically, Euclid just surveys the sky. It takes a picture of a little piece of the sky and then the next little piece of the sky and the next. And and after several years, it's covered the whole thing. And then it does some parts much, much deeper to to do some parts uh, in more detail. Um, But it basically just as a schedule where it just takes images of one piece of the sky after the other. So it's a, it's a pretty simple, it's a pretty simple telescope. So that that's one reason why we're optimistic because once it's working, it doesn't do anything very complicated. So there's not that much that can go wrong. Uh, so we're hoping that it will continue and finish its full survey and we will come back on the air and tell you what dark matter is. Hopefully. <laughs> well, you know what? I look forward to that. Listen, thank you so much for joining us this morning. You're very welcome. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer on this holiday Monday. Like, yeah, we've got BC political stuff to talk about too, but first we're going to talk about Canadian music. Good morning, Vaughn. Good good morning, Simi. (laughs) I'm glad you want to talk about this. Of course. Happy Canada Day, Rolling Stone magazine. This is lovely what they did. They published the list of the 50 greatest Canadian music performers of all time. I have a problem with this list, Vaughn, don't you? Uh, Simi, I would have thought you'd be over the moon because they put Celine Dion on the list this time. <laughs> we completely ignored her on the 200 greatest That's singers true. of all time. I think there's a bit of penance here, but uh, you're right. We can now go on to complaining that uh, Nickelback and BTO aren't on the list. So, oh, you know. right. I didn't even think about Nickelback and BTO. I was looking at all the, the people that were on the list. First of all, you're right. Okay, Celine Dion's on the list, as well she should be, number 10, I might add. But how is it that Gordon Lightfoot is lower than The Weeknd? That I did not understand. Carly Rae Jepsen at number 14, she had one song. Okay, so here's the thing. Yeah, Rolling Stone, right? The rap on Rolling Stone is they're like me, a bunch of boomers living in the past. And you, know, you can look at some of the names on the list and you realize they are. So I think they're really, really conscious about the need to show that they're hip and with it. So Drake is right up there in the top, what, five? He's number four three, I think. And hey, um, the weekend, uh, what, opened the Super Bowl, right? How many Canadians can claim that one? So I think that's probably the reason they were knocked over by him. They're trying to show their hip and with it. Personally, I was delighted to see Joni Mitchell, number one. Yes. One of the musical joys of this past year has been seeing Mitchell, who's had a rough 20 years. She's 86. She's on a cane getting the recognition she deserved. Uh, Folks, you can go to YouTube and see the concert she did with Brandi Carlisle and Annie Lennox and a bunch of other uh, musical stars at the Gorge in Washington. Uh, it, It really is quite amazing to see uh, partly the adulation she's getting. So that's a nice one. Um, oh, <laughs> I love this one. It is a knowledgeable list, right? It isn't just the people that sold the most records True. and most music. Like, you know, they put the McGarrigals on it. That one delighted me because they don't get a lot of attention. And they're number 16. Uh, DOA. <laughs> I looked at that and I thought... There's a counselor out in Burnaby, <laughs> Joe Keithley, who's going, wow. <laughs> they remember Joey, we won't say what his performing name was, but DOA is credited with being one of the pioneers of punk rock in the 1970s. 
and a nice recognition for them. I d- right, you're right. The top, the top three, four, I don't, I don't have a problem with. I thought they did it. They did a good job here. And just so that people know what the top three or four is, like number one, Joni Mitchell, as you said. Number two, Neil Young. Three was Rush. Mike Smith will love that. Smitty loves Rush. Number four, Leonard Cohen. Yeah. Uh, and then number five is Drake. Yeah. And I thought, He's okay, huge, but, isn't he? Like, I I'm guess. not crazy about that kind of music, but I gather from what people in the music industry say, he's enormous, right? Like he's yeah, he's like Rush. He's, he can't overlook him, right? So and number six is the band, and I still yeah. think Gordon Lightfoot at number eleven probably should have been in the top five. Well, I think Lightfoot hmm, faded. You know, maybe that's it. Although the band. Peaked in the 1970s, too. Yeah. Uh, and the band, of course, are only four-fifths Canadians. Uh, Levon Helm is an American. So, But uh, anyway, uh, one of the things in the little lead-in that I thought was also important, they said that Canada has produced three or four of the greatest pop songwriters of modern times. Right? Nice. And that would be, uh, they didn't name them, but I assume that's Mitchell and Young, for starters, one and two. Leonard Cohen, I'm guessing, and maybe the band, uh, because uh, the strength of those artists is uh, their songwriting. Anyway, look, thank you so much, Rolling Stone. It's nice <laughs> to see Canada recognized. Happy Canada Day. And um, Okay, I'm just going to say know, one more Simi, thing. One more uh, thing, hey, Ron. listen, listen, Simi. You know what they said about Celine Dion after ignoring her completely? Her voice is unmissable. I know. I saw that too. I was like, oh, is talk it? About, talk is about it? picking yourself off, off the floor and <laughs> admitting that, hey, we missed something. Uh, here we are. Also, I will just say this. Top 50, and obviously I would say, yeah, sure, all these belong in the top 50. Uh, no Michael Bublé. Yeah, okay. Somewhere in the 50? <laughs> I like feel I'm kind saying... of about him the way I sort of feel about Celine Dion. And I, uh, I'll change the subject and let's talk about Brian Adams <laughs> being only number 30. Number 30. That's the other thing, too. I thought, I don't know, some of these are a little low on the list. So yeah. that's what Vaughn and I think. If people want to weigh in, check out the Rolling Stones list. Also, no Nickelback, too. But let's not, you know, we won't, we won't they, go well, into they that. They got Loverboy, okay? So, like, Way you know. down there. Loverboy was, like, way down there. Yeah, mm-hmm. Come on. I still remember him. You still play it at those songs? That song gets played all over North America every Friday afternoon. Come on. Yeah, we know true. that. Yeah. Every okay. every Friday. Okay. Let's talk about jobs here because there's some good numbers out here taking a look at jobs numbers across the country. And, you know, I know the government loves to think BC is doing really well. But when you dig a little deeper in the numbers, Vaughn, what's the real story there? Yeah, there's a good report out from the BC Business Council taking a deeper look at the job numbers in BC and pointing out a couple of trends that have longer-term implications. So the New Democrats always celebrate the jobs numbers. They inherited one of the best employment records in the country, and they've maintained it for the most part. A couple of things the BC Business Council points out. First of all is that the job numbers are slowing. This is true right across the country, but in BC they're slowing more than they are in some of the other provinces. Uh, we're actually going backwards uh, in already in some parts of the private sector, manufacturing jobs, that's all the forced mill closures and stuff. Um, the other thing they say is that most of the good jobs news in British Columbia for over a year now has been public sector jobs. The New Democrats are increasing the size of government. They've, <clears throat> in their time in office, they've increased employment in central government by 30%. 
So a huge increase in central government, also in health care and other sec- in other public sectors. So what the uh, Business Council, and you know where the, we know where they're coming from, but their analysts, Ken Peacock and Jock Finlayson, are good. They say job uh, creation in British Columbia is slowing, only 1% growth over the past year, and the it's mostly public sector now. The private sector is stalled. So that has long-term implications for the economy. It has long-term implications for government because government gets a lot of revenue from the export sector and the manufacturing and all that. And those sectors just aren't keeping up with what the New Democrats are doing in the public sector. And so where are all these jobs in the public service then? Well, uh, you know, Adrian Dix tells us every chance he gets that he's added about 40,000 positions in healthcare alone, right? Central government, so that's just the ministries. That's not school boards and universities and colleges and health regions. Central government, um, they've added the New Democrats about uh, 10,000 jobs. So, and that's where the 30% comes from. So, you know, I... Were those jobs needed? Uh, do those jobs take some of the pressure off the healthcare sector uh, and so forth? Yes, yes. But in the long run, you know, the government, in order to be able to pay its bills, right now it's in surplus. We don't know how long that will last. Uh, they also need the private sector gr- growth. It's balance. Uh, private sector is still the major player in many, many British Columbia communities, especially those outside of Vancouver and Victoria. Right. Okay. So, and there's still a lot of growth happening. That doesn't bode well, though, for future jobs numbers. Yeah, it doesn't. And you know, the government it has talked about it, it's an it's a it's a sign of confidence in British Columbia, but it's also one of the biggest challenges we face. British Columbia is overwhelmingly one of the big destinations of the people that are moving to Canada, of our immigrant population. It's also been attracting population from other provinces. So that rapid growth in the population, especially outsiders coming here, well, those are the people that are putting pressure on the system for health care and schools and all of that, affordable housing, well, they're also going to be looking for work. So far, the jobs have been there. Our employment rate is keeping pace, although there are sectors where there's actually shortages of workers, like construction. Uh, but in the long run, that you're right, Simi, that I think is a sign that you know things are faltering. We're not keeping up. 1% job growth year to year is not going to keep up with the need for very long. It may It may be... People are being attracted, for example, to the government jobs because government pay and benefits are better, and the government pays its bills, so they're more reliable than a lot of private sector jobs. But in the long run, if you're going to address private sector problems, um, you're going to need to deal with some of the things Business Council cites as the reason for slow growth and no growth in the private sector, and whether that is... Uh, taxes or regulation or regulatory barriers, the difficulties of getting stuff built in British Columbia and getting projects approved, it all goes into the mix. So, you know, this isn't a disaster for the NDP. It's more of an early warning sign Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, the New Democrats are very, very confident that things are going to be fine and they're going to get reelected next year and the way the trends are going on a lot of fronts. uh, That's not a bad bet, but 
the economy really stalls, as it might be doing, uh, then that might not be as easy a road next year as the New Democrats think it will be. Mm-hmm, exactly. Ron, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Do you have a family doctor? I mean, even if you do have one, it can be so hard to get an appointment, right, to talk about something that isn't urgent. And if you want just a prescription refilled or just some questions about a minor thing, it can be hard to get that access. So since June the 1st, BC had started allowing pharmacists to diagnose and prescribe medications for something like 21 minor ailments. And then last week, they updated that further. The government launched an online portal to book appointments with pharmacists to get things done even faster. So you've got something on that list and you don't want to go to your doctor to deal with it. You can go to this online portal, make an appointment, see your pharmacist, boom, get your prescription done. So that happens even faster now. How did this all come together? How did they decide on the 21 ailments? And is this a role that pharmacists could even see expanding further? Well, we had a chance to ask all of that, talk about it with Chris Chu, president of the BC Pharmacy Association. Well, thanks so much for joining us this morning, Chris, to talk about this. So first off, this seems very significant for pharmacists. This is the first time across Canada this has happened, right? For BC, um, yes, uh, this actually just, uh, oh, the IMS BC platform in terms of the booking platform, yes, this is actually across uh, the first time across Canada. It is something significant to make access for patients easier. So instead of trying to call, and sometimes the pharmacies are really busy and you might be on hold for a little bit or difficulty trying to get through, you can actually just go to the government BC government website um, and you'll be able to search, actually find a pharmacy for minor ailments and then be able to click on the link to be able to see exactly which pharmacy is offering which minor ailment so that you can actually book a, a specific time and date that actually works for you. Okay, and so how was it that this list was decided upon? It's 21 minor ailments and contraceptives. Is this something that pharmacists felt comfortable dealing with? Uh, it was actually a combination of all various healthcare um, professionals were coming together to determine what would work best. It was actually a collaborative effect um, and then de- dealing with the patient. So we had to make sure that uh, from all healthcare providers that we were dealing with the individuals that uh, would be easily diagnosed um, and then after that uh, to have the prescription written for them. Now, the other thing is actually that we had to make sure that it doesn't hide a more severe incident. And if it doesn't, then yeah, uh, we would be able to follow up. And if it didn't work, then pass them on to the next healthcare provider. Okay. And you said something interesting back there is that so not every pharmacy will do all of this. You might have to, might be only certain pharmacists that feel comfortable doing this. The majority of actually pharmacies actually have taken on with uh, 21 minor ailments. Uh, obviously, there's actually a lot, and we want to make sure that we are actually helping the patients uh, get the service that they need. So, yes, uh, there are some pharmacies that are not doing all of it, but they will come on board to eventually be able to help uh, with all the 21 minor ailments. Okay, and what is the idea behind this, Chris? Like, why do this? Um, well, with the number of physicians uh, and the healthcare system in a situation where their patients are having difficulty getting access, we have actually over 1,400 pharmacies throughout BC that are actually open at various um, times of the day, on the weekends, long weekends, and as well, too, in small and large uh, communities. So the access is there in terms of patients being able to see a pharmacist to get that initial assessment and um, get it quickly as well, too, because not only can they book appointments, but they can also walk in as well too. And we're seeing that the top 
15 minor ailments, um, patients are getting the quick and easy access that they need so they can get the treatment quickly instead of actually having to, to wait to see um, a physician or go into long wait times at urgent care centers. Right, I was wondering about that too. So do you think this is something that patients are going to like right away get on board for? They're going to, okay, yeah, I, I, I'm comfortable talking to my pharmacist about this. Yes, and we've uh, created that uh, um, uh We've created that connection with patients so that when we, they do come in, we feel comfortable with them. They've known their pharmacist for many years, and we know that patient uh, that's been coming to see us for many years. So there's that initial connection. On day one, on June 1st, when we did launch it, um, we know of actually a pharmacy that actually had 10 patients come in that evening for that minor ailment prescribing just because of the fact that they had nowhere else to go. And then on that day one as well, too, another pharmacy reported that there, were patient, there was a patient waiting outside um, because she had actually eczema and couldn't see her physician. So when she found that out, she was able to get treated by that pharmacist and actually uh, had it resolved within uh, three days. Wow. Do you foresee this perhaps expanding beyond this if this is successful? Uh, well, in terms of uh, the 21 minor ailments, uh, those will be it. But yes, there are actually other things that pharmacists can do to help with the healthcare system to make it more effective and, and create easier access. One of the things that we're looking at to, with the government and other healthcare providers working collaboratively is to do point of care testing um, and help triage the system so that we can actually take some of the burden off. Okay, so do you see more of that coming then? Yes, definitely we do. Okay, so, and people are, are getting comfortable with that, right? Clearly people are looking for options out there, Chris, aren't they? Yes, um, they are definitely looking for options um, because of the fact that, again, uh, with respect to how burdened the healthcare system is, I think if a pharmacy can actually help take care of some of that off, um, it would actually make it more efficient for patients to seek the care that they need. All right, so interesting. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Okay, thank you. Take care. This is Mornings with Simi. An update now on our port situation. There is a lot of concern over the economic repercussions of this strike by more than 7,400 members of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union Canada. They went on strike a couple of days ago. Today is actually day three of that. And a lot of people might not have noticed that because it's a long weekend. But you know what? As we head into the work week, things people get back to work, you're going to start to notice and hear about this because already business groups are saying this is a huge problem. Now, the latest update on the strike is that bargaining continues. They went back to the bargaining table yesterday. The federal government has said they want to see a negotiated deal. And in fact, the bargaining continues with the help of a federal kind of mediator there in the room at the table. But let's talk about the impact of this. So joining us now is Robin Guy, who's vice president and deputy leader of government relations for the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Robin, thank you for joining us. Good morning. How worried are you at this point with what's going on? Yeah, we're extremely concerned uh, with, with the commence of a strike. Uh, and, and, and really, I mean, when we look down to it, I mean, a shutdown of our ports will simply fuel inflation. It's going to increase costs to Canadian families and businesses, but it will also inflict serious damage on our Canadian economy. So, you know, you mentioned we're day three. I think every day counts right now, which is why we've been asking uh, the government to, to really step in at this point and, and, and resolve this as soon as possible. Okay, when you say government step in, what do you want to see happen? Yeah, so so we we did, we made the call yesterday um, to, uh, to 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 call on the government to to recall Parliament uh, that is on break right now for the summer and to to introduce back to work legislation. Already, you think not? Get, you don't want to see more negotiation? 
Well, you take, and, and, and absolutely, but I mean, at the end of the day, when you take a look at the, what, what this is, could possibly do to the economy, we're $800 million in cargo moving through these terminals a day. That's 25% of uh, trade in Canada. If you look after a week, that's $5.5 billion. So that's, that's more than some of the promises the government has been making on things like dental care. Okay, let's talk about then the impact of this, as you just pointed out there. So we've, we're in day three here. How will people start to notice this, Rob? And I know businesses will and you will, but, you know, for average, for the rest of us out there, how will we feel the impact of this? So, and I'll say that people will probably already have started feeling uh, in some way, shape or form, and including the business community. So, uh, business needs stability within within our supply chain. So, so they're not going with with a, with a possible uh, labor labor issue. Businesses were already taking a look and, and making alternative plans. That means, for example, looking down to go to U.S. ports and then bringing it up uh, from 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 the U.S. Uh, things like that. So, so you know, taking taking a look into now, for example, produce produce comes in through through the port of Vancouver. If there's not the ability to move that produce, it's going to sit in containers. It's going to rot. Uh, that means things like, uh, you know, produce on grocery store uh, shelves. Uh, we could start seeing the impact of that very shortly. Okay, and all, we all know there are already concerns at the port with supply chains and everything that happened in the last couple of years. Had everything gotten back up and running? Was the port running as smoothly as, as prior to the pandemic? Yeah, I think uh, we, we, we've seen that over the last three years we've had problems. We start, started to see it finally kind of recover, and then, of course, this happened. So, um, according to to our, um, our 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 business data lab, which which takes a look at the uh, at, at business conditions, um, we see about twenty five percent of of business actually concerned about supply chain. That's a little down from from the height of the pandemic, but obviously a quarter of business is, is still a massive amount to be concerned about supply chain. That's only going to go up again based off of of, of this uh, this this late labor dispute. And has the port been growing? Do you think like was shipping really ramping up? I think, again, you see, I mean, our West Coast ports, and that's both the port of Vancouver, port of Prince Rupert, have played a massive role in getting goods across the country. There are a massive piece when you look at the government's Indo-Pacific strategy, which looks to engage with countries in the Indo-Pacific. You know, that the, these these are playing massive roles in in in, uh, in fulfilling that strategy. Obviously, if 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 uh, if, if things aren't moving, uh, you know, we'll we'll have a little bit more of a difficult time uh, to uh, to do that. But also from from a reputational standpoint, again, this is this is something that uh, it's not the first uh, issue that we've had uh, from a reputational standpoint. I think people might start asking the question: Can Canada actually get the goods uh, to 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 market uh, when when they need it? Right, because how how much of an impact will this be felt in other parts of the country? Well, and absolutely. I mean, it's a national issue. Again, you know, the eight hundred million dollars in cargo, twenty five percent of trade in Canada comes through 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 these ports. Um, that's that's not something that just BC will feel. That's something that the whole country feels. Okay, and so do you think that'll happen quickly? Then, like we know, BC will feel the effects of this quickly uh, with the slowdown. But like other parts of the country, by the end of the week. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I don't want to put a time frame on it, but again, you know, the, the lead up to this strike, I think, I think people had to, to start making the decision of, of uh, do they divert from, from, from these ports? So, so I think you'll see it from that side of things. But definitely, I mean, the longer we go, I think the, 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 the more impact that this will have to the Canadian economy. Yeah. What are the alternatives then, Robin? If people say, OK, well, we're not going to deal with B.C. ports, like what do people do? They have to bring things up for the United States? Well, yeah, you're going to see absolutely going through through the United States. Uh, I mean, you could see a little bit coming through through the East Coast, but I mean, from a capacity standpoint, I mean, people people, especially when you're when you're looking at the Asian uh, gateways, uh, they're they're going to have to come up through the through the United States. 
Okay, so then your group, the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, would like to see the government essentially say, hey, get back to work. Absolutely. All right, Robin, thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi. We are talking now about our organ transplant systems, kind of part of our continuing conversation about what's going on in our healthcare system. And the thing is, we're not doing enough organ transplants here. And the reason is very simple. We don't have enough organ transplant surgeons. And let's talk about that, in particular when it comes to donated kidneys that are now being sent to other provinces as a result. So joining us now is Dr. John Gill, who's a nephrologist at Vancouver General Hospital. Dr. Gill, thank you for joining us. Uh, good morning, Simi. Uh, my name is John Gill. I work actually at St. Paul's Hospital, and just by way of background for the listeners, uh, I work in the UBC Division of Nephrology Kidney Transplant Program, which performs all of the adult kidney transplants in the province, and that program operates at St. Paul's and VGH, and I work at St. Paul's. Okay, so thank you for that. So tell me, how big is the program here in BC? So we have uh, one of the largest programs in the entire country. Um, Historically, we perform just over 320 kidney transplants per year, Um, and that includes kidneys from people who have passed away or deceased donor kidney transplants, as well as kidney transplants from living donors. Okay, and have you seen changes in the program because we don't have enough transplant surgeons? Absolutely. So since 2022, we've really had a surgical crisis um, in the kidney transplant program on the adult side, where we're basically operating with half the number of surgeons that we need to safely perform these transplants. Uh, Currently, we have four surgeons, which means those folks are operating every second day. Um, And because of that, we've had to shutter the program about 20% of the time, and that has resulted in a significant number of kidneys that have been donated in BC not being able to be transplanted in patients on BC transplant uh, waiting lists. As a result, those kidneys have been uh, shipped for transplant to other programs, and those are really uh, lost opportunities for life-saving transplants because we do not have a national uh, organ donation system, so there'll be no payback for those kidneys. They're not they're not coming back to BC patients. Doctor Gill, that sounds that sounds terrible. I mean, twenty percent. That's a lot of people on a waiting list who aren't getting a kidney. So the actual numbers. Um, so in twenty twenty two, we performed two hundred and eighty eight uh, transplants at both hospitals, but seventy op- uh, opportunities for transplantation were lost. That includes 60 kidneys, which were actually transported and and, uh, benefited patients on waiting lists in other provinces, which is a good thing. But there were 10 uh, kidneys that uh, were not recovered in BC. These were from older, more fragile donors, which those kidneys uh, can't be transported easily. And normally we would have uh, transplanted uh, those kidneys uh, into BC patients um, just for logistical reasons we can we can do that but they don't travel very well in 2023 to date we've lost 13 opportunities for transplant uh, where uh, 13 transplants didn't occur for the same reason but more importantly in addition we were unable to import uh, two uh, kidneys for people who are what we call very highly sensitized 
These are a select few patients who are on a national waiting list because they're very hard to match. And so if they receive a kidney that matches to them anywhere in the country, in those special circumstances, we would import those kidneys. And we were unable to accept two kidneys for so, such patients, which really is, is a, a travesty because those patients probably uh, may not ever get another offer for transplant. Oh, Dr. Gill, I'm just shaking my head listening to you in this. Like, how did we get here? Well, you know, we have had a lot of good things in our province. The kidney transplant program is a leading program in the world. Just to give you some background, um, uh, you know, we have about 7,500 patients who are alive with kidney failure, meaning that they have to be treated with dialysis or transplant. And BC has the highest proportion of people in the entire country that are treated with transplant. Over 52% of that 7,400 patients are treated with transplant. So we have had significant growth in the program due to really um, outstanding support from society with organ donation, excellent work on the organ donation side from BC Transplant, and we have very strong living donor programs. So the program has grown about 40% over the last three to four years and, and uh, that's really uh, unprecedented growth, but we haven't kept pace with investing in, you know, this life-saving service. Um, and I think it's, if I, if I may just expand a little mm-hmm. bit, you know, we've, we've heard a lot about unmet needs in healthcare, and they're extremely pressing, but this is a little bit different in that we're talking about a very specialized program that provides life-saving uh, transplants. And, you know, just to give you a sense of the societal benefits of of, of kidney transplantation, they're life-saving for the patients that receive them. Uh, A diagnosis of kidney failure is similar to a diagnosis of cancer, and transplant transforms that. So these patients significantly improve uh, their, their life expectancy. They have way better quality of life. But importantly for us, you know, for the taxpayers in, in, in the province, each kidney transplant over the life of the transplant saves the healthcare system over half a million dollars compared to treatment with dialysis. So this is a specialized program that really should be protected and optimally resourced because of the societal value that it, it, it uh, provides. You know, the parallel for me would be to say, you know, it would never be acceptable to say that we would stop our cardiothoracic or bypass uh, uh, heart programs um, because it affects so many people. This has the same magnitude just for a smaller number of people. So to say that we would shut that service down, you know, 20% of the time is is really wouldn't be tolerated. And and here, uh, that's what's happening because of the shortage that we have. Right. What you're saying here is it's, it's really it's also a numbers game, right? To invest a little bit upfront means that we're going to save more money in the long run and save people's you know, quality of life and and what they're able to do. That's absolutely true. But, uh, you know, transplant is unique in that it's linked to societal trust, right? Uh, People are donating organs uh, to help save patients' lives. Now, it is a good thing that the, the majority of those organs did benefit other Canadians, but we don't have a national system. So patients in BC are not benefiting from organs that are donated in BC. So how do we fix this then? What kind of investment needs to be made? So I think that, you know, we need to think about uh, healthcare in a way uh, that is perhaps different, which is to say that what is the, the critical functions that have to be done 
Um, and the kidney transplant program is an example of that. It needs 24-7 support, 365 days a year. It takes, it's a team sport. It takes surgeons, medical doctors, uh, specialized nursing care and pharmacists to deliver these therapies, but they have huge value to the, to, to the, to the, to, to the society. And so I think we need to sort of think about how are we going to attract uh, people and retain people to operate this valuable service. So I think it needs a, a different model of, of thinking about how we support these, uh, these programs so that they never are compromised. Right now, we have a world-leading program that is uh, being significantly handicapped. Would, would you use the word compromise? Would you say the program is right now compromised? Absolutely. The integrity of the program is being compromised, but more importantly, our patients, I mean, again, I come back to the, the human toll of this. We're talking about over 80 patients in BC who've been waiting years for, for kidney transplants who did not receive them. Um, and I think that that is ultimately the most compelling narrative. All of the other health economic issues that I've touched upon are, are obviously secondary considerations, uh, but they're important in the context of how you know we invest and protect our healthcare system for the future. How hard is it for us to recruit more transplant surgeons, and what kind of challenge is this? Well, that's a huge challenge because uh, you know my surgical colleagues perform very technical work. It's hard work. It's done at unsociable hours, and it, and right now they're taking call every second day. Um, and, uh, and that, so anybody we recruit is going to be coming into a very difficult work environment. Um, it will take time to get up to, uh, we need eight transplant surgeons. Currently we have four. It's going to take time to find those people and to recruit them, uh, uh, to, to the province. So this is an issue that again, I would describe it as a crisis. Dr. Gill, thanks for telling us about it this morning. Thank you for your time and interest. This is Mornings with Simi. By now, we've all heard, you know, about Esther Wang. 16 years old, went missing almost a week ago at Golden Years Park. And for days, everyone was searching for her. We were hoping, hoping, hoping she was okay. And then on Thursday night, she walks out of the park on her own at about 9.30, 10 o'clock at night, right to her waiting parents. Amazing story. And you know what's great as well about Esther's story is how prepared she was. A lot went right for her because she did a lot right too. And we wanted to talk about that this morning because Esther has also released an open letter to the public because she knows there's so much interest. Her parents know there has been so much interest in knowing what happened. How did she get lost? And then what did she do when she realized that she was lost? So she's released this open letter. And for more on that, of course, you can check out our website, cknw.com globalnews.ca. But let's talk about the things that that really Esther did right here. Lessons that we can all take from this. Ryan Smith is with us now, Ridge Meadows Search and Rescue Team Manager. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. This is really the outcome you hope for all the time, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yes, definitely. Okay. And so can you give us an idea of how intensive the search was for Esther last week? Yeah, we had uh, 16 search teams from all over Central Fraser Valley up through the Sea Sky Corridor and more were on their way with the thought that we may have been going into the weekend. So we usually had about over 50 searchers a day in, in the field actually looking for Esther from Tuesday evening right through till when she walked out, like you say, on, on Thursday evening, as well as obviously our partner agencies, uh, helicopters, etc., to to assist us in, in the search for Esther. How dense is the foliage there, Ryan? Like, how challenging is that terrain? 
Yeah, it's very challenging. It's a very steep uh, area of the park that she was in. There's a lot of uh, tree coverage, which obviously made our, our search quite difficult with uh, the helicopters and the drones unable to see underneath the tree canopy. And just underneath there, there's a lot of um, devil's club and things like that, there's a lot of vegetation. It makes it very difficult to see anywhere, really. It's like six foot tall in some places and, and very difficult and dense to, to get through and, and work your way through, which I think Esther found in, in remarks to in, in, our, in our letter that you mentioned. Yeah, that's the frustrating part, right? When you read through the letter is that she says that she could see the helicopters, she could hear things going on, but she couldn't get the search and rescue's attention. Yes, that's a, it's a big part of what we uh, encourage, and certainly with our partners in Adventure Smart, we encourage uh, people to take whistle, uh, whistles, which are a great signaling device, and you know they never run out of batteries like other things do, and they can be heard over quite a distance. So, and really, that's what a lot of our uh, searchers were using. We use uh, sound to try and uh, let people know where we are, and they can they can respond back. So, three whistle blasts is. Uh, you know, obviously the, the international sign there to that somebody needs help. And so we'd certainly encourage people to take a, at least a whistle with them whenever they're going into the back country so that they can signal uh, searchers and let us know where they are. Yeah, that's great advice. Okay, but there were a lot of other things that Esther did right, weren't there? Like, what did you think when you were reading through her letter? Yeah, I think one of the, the best things and one of the big things that she did, uh, well, what comes across in her letter certainly, is that she didn't panic. Uh, I think one of the, you know, we always say to stop and, you know, we want to encourage that. And that's a message where I've been talking about for the last few days uh, to, to everybody. If you do become lost, we want you to stop. We want you to assess what you, where, what your situation is, if it's safe to do so. Think about what you're going to do. Observe the area that you're in. Where is it safe to go? Is it best to go downhill, back up till to where you actually know where you're going to, uh, the area that you came from, and then plan for, for how you're going to uh, get out of there. So one of the things that Esther obviously remarks that is that she, when she did become lost and obviously she went through the undergrowth, she did actually stop and she paused and she took a moment. And, you know, I think she mentions a training with the air cadets and things like that, that she'd received a little bit of instruction in the back country. So that allowed her not to panic. And, you know, we always say that that's sometimes the cause of the, the greatest uh, fault is that when people panic and make decisions based on, on fear and uh, not considering their circumstances, which could make a, a bad situation worse. So, uh, you know, she did have a little bit of water. She did have a little bit of uh, food as well, which uh, I think she rationed some of her food and she was able to refill our, our water bottles as well when she could. And again, we want to encourage people to actually carry the amount of water that they are going to need uh, when they're in the back country, because we, we're trying to avoid people filling water from streams. Unfortunately, there is only bacteria in the streams and the rivers in, in BC, so some people can get sick. So we would try and encourage people to take water bottles into the back country. But Esther there did use the water, and you know she doesn't seem to be worse for the wear for it, fortunately. And I think that really helped her. She, she did take the rest where she needed to, and she tried to orientate her using the photographs that she'd taken uh, during our during our journey back to uh, find a path mm-hmm. out of our situation. I thought that was so impressive, the, the fact that she did try to orient herself. Can you give us some tips on, on how hikers can do that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, we encourage people to be able to use a, a map and compass. Again, they don't use batteries, so they don't run out, but... 
knowing how to use them. There is courses out there, uh, you know, adventure smart run courses and, and different search and rescue teams run run courses on how to use uh, map and compasses. And, and knowing that area where you are, knowing, having a, taking a look when you start your hike about where are the points that you're going to go. So the peaks around you, say, or, the, you know, the rivers and the, and the pathways that you're going to use. And just have a basic understanding of the, the terrain that you're going to be uh, entering. And then, obviously, I know a lot of people now, you know, they use their, their cellular phones and different devices to uh, to operate on. Just remember that you may go out of cell coverage. You may not have that cell phone uh, able to tell you where you're going to go. It may run out of batteries, as, as they do. So, again, we'd encourage things that use uh, devices that use GPS rather than uh, rather than cellular coverage and make sure that your battery's uh, ready to make sure that they, they operate in, in that area. And just have a general idea of when you're going to go, when you're going to come back. So we'd certainly encourage uh, making a trip plan. Let people know the areas that you're going to be travelling in. Leave it with somebody and let them know when you're going to be back, so that they can then alert the authorities and let us know when they're, uh, you know, if somebody's overdue then we can come and try and find you and, and bring people back out of the back country. Right. It also sounds like people perhaps tend to rely too much on their cell phone rather than doing kind of the logical and, and kind of looking up, looking around and making note of where they are. A hundred percent. Yes. And, you know, it, it seems from, from my associate, our, our original misstep there was, uh, you know, she missed the trail and there is a lot of uh, what may look like trails uh, in in the trailhead, certainly in Golden Ears and all other, all other parks and in areas that people are going to, then it may be just animal trails that people follow thinking it's a path. And like we say, this is why we say stop, because if you forge on down these pathways, they can end up, you know, cliffing out or, or worse, which lends people in a difficult situation. So it's, it's very easy to get lost in these areas. And like you say, you know, you may be following something on your device that tells you that it's a path where, you know, it may not be a path. And, you know, you follow that blindly. And certainly, you know, there's a lot of information on the Adventure Smart website and different search and rescue teams' websites about the areas that they're going to. We'd certainly encourage people to look at these and, and think of the challenges because a lot of people remark on those about, you know, trails that may be missteps and, and misguided or mismarked in relation to where they're going and and problems that they're having in those areas uh, rather than relying solely on your on your cellular device and, and what other people have done. Right. It also struck me in Esther's letter that, you know, she as you said, she didn't panic and she thought logically about it, right? She thought about the flow of water, what she had seen, the most likely, you know, direction that she should go to. And I thought that's impressive. It is very impressive. I mean, it, you know, this is obviously a remarkable young lady. She's, uh, you know, 16-year-old. It very much helped with the, our age and our, our physical fitness and, and, you know, the ability to just to work the problem that she was well, that she was having. And certainly in our letter, it does demonstrate our, our logical thinking, which was uh, excellent and obviously uh, led to the positive outcome that, that we got on Thursday evening. Okay, and now that's great advice for everybody in this season and I guess all year round, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. And uh, again, we're we're coming up to a busy season, uh, certainly for Ridge Meadows and a lot of the other search and rescue teams. We had a, a busy weekend with uh, a few more calls. And, you know, this is not to discourage people from going into the backcountry. We live in, you know, a very beautiful part of the world and we want to encourage people to get out there and, and utilise the backcountry and, and enjoy it safely. And just consider, you know, have those 10 essentials, make those trip plans, learn how to uh, use the tools that you have, like your first aid kits, your flashlights, your whistles, your uh, your compass, like I mentioned, and, and just enjoy it. And, uh, you know, if you do that, 
that safely, then you know you'll have a positive outcome. Uh, and if not, please, you know, like I say, take these whistles, take the devices for for signalling, and you know, search and rescue will are are there for everybody in the province to to come, and uh, we will help you out if needed. All right. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Have a good day. This is Mornings with Simi. When I was a kid, I loved reading. In fact, I still have a lot of the books, all my favorite ones from when I was little. And you know what? It's good news. It's good news for parents if your kids love reading too. There's actually a recent study out that shows kids who engage in regular reading for pleasure, maybe around, I don't know, 12 hours a week, may actually experience enhanced cognitive abilities and better mental health outcomes during their teenage years. And honestly, as parents, anything that you can make better for those teenage years, that is a win. So joining us now to talk about this is Barbara Sahekian, who's a professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Cambridge. Barbara, thank you for joining us. Well, it's my pleasure. Tell me, how did we measure this? How do, how do we know that this is a positive outcome? So we, we measured it uh, with cognition uh, measures such as uh, learning and memory, those sorts of traditional things. We also looked at their academic grades. So we have academic achievement scores to see that uh, reading uh, for pleasure as a child actually improves your academic performance as an adolescent. And then we looked at mental health measures, very important, because as you know, there seems to be uh, many adolescents who suffer from depression and anxiety, but we found that symptoms were much lower if they read uh, read for pleasure as a child. So it helps your um, brain structure, actually. It helps your cognition. It helps your academic achievement. And it's good for your mental health. Plus, it um, reduces the time you spend on your, you know, staring at your computer screen and that type of thing. <laughs> that's, that's good for all of us, though. That's good for adults, too, to stop doing that. Uh, but you, you mentioned reading for pleasure. That's the trick, though, isn't it, Barbara, is getting your kids to read for pleasure. How do you do that? Well, these kids mostly started quite early. So that's important that you, you know, get them interested, even if they're just sort of picture books with a few words, just sort of discussing and pointing at the pictures and getting their language going and that type of thing, because it's really generates creative thinking. And it almost doesn't matter what they read, you know, because preferences are very different and you want them to enjoy it. So they'll keep doing it. But it's really something that's an all-rounder. So it's so important that parents, you know, engage that way or at school teachers do um, get kids uh, in the habit of reading for pleasure because it really is very protective as an adolescent. Okay. And so what is the difference here? Reading for pleasure, we're talking about books or what about engaging in kind of interactive um, content, even like online? Well, Because these kids are starting reading for pleasure early, uh, it will be mostly picture books and things like that, you know, with a few words in it to start with. And then obviously the words build up. Um, I think one one reason they're spending less uh, screen time as an adolescent is perhaps they got in the habit of reading books. So, um, you know, initially it will be books that they're reading, although maybe maybe later they'll go on to tablets and things like that for reading stories. Um, but originally it's picture books and that stimulates the, you know, creative thinking about what is the story about and, you know, uh, getting them to focus uh, their attention. So they have less attentional problems, actually, as adolescents, too, when they read for pleasure as a child. 
So is there an argument to be made that the books somehow do that? They somehow create more critical thinking and imagination? Yeah, I think they do because, you know, as you're sort of uh, discussing it with a child or they're pointing at a picture and you're asking them what it is or they say it's a dog or a cat or whatever, and then they start to get a bit older and they start to engage in the story itself, it really uh, stimulates that creative thinking and also, uh, you know, really imagination and innovation in some ways about, you know, magical things that can happen. And there's lots of, as you know, the J.K. Rowling books are very popular with the wizards and things like that. So it really does grab the child's imagination and get them thinking um, in a very creative way. Now, so what is the link here then in the teenage years? What kind of a difference can that make? Well, the great thing is that almost everything improves. So you've got um, actually a better brain structure You've got better um, cognitive function. You've got better academic scores. So your grades at school are better. And then on top of that, you have fewer symptoms of depression, anxiety, and stress. And so it's it's a good all around it. And they also show less behavioral problems and they have better sleep, better quality of sleep. So that's a good thing too, because uh, your teenage years, your brain's still in development. You need a lot of sleep. Okay, so it could be anything that they read, but provided it is just books. And how early is how early can you start here? Well, I mean, really, you can start very early because they start with the sort of picture books, and usually they just have one one or two words on them, as you probably know. And so you can um, associate the the words with the pictures, and that's how you sometimes start to read. So um, I, I'd recommend as early as possible. And while we found that the optimal amount of time was 12 hours per week, it actually starts to get benefits at four hours per week. So even doing four, eight hours per week wasn't that much different from 12 hours per week, actually. It's just that 12 hours was the optimum. Right. So, you know, it, it's really good thing to to stimulate their reading uh, pleasure. So kids love it when, you know, the, the adult reads to them. How do we make that transition, though, where they're reading it on their own and doing it for pleasure? Yeah, I think, um, obviously, you have to teach them how to read to some extent. That's part of what goes on with the parents and the teachers. So uh, unlike some of our other skills, like speech, where we sort of pick it up more easily, the um, reading you have to be taught. So I think it starts with those very early books where you're associating the words. There aren't too many of them. And you're beginning to know how to use them and what they look like. And so you can uh, begin to read them yourself. And then obviously, as you get um, more and more experience with reading, you can read much more complicated things. Oh, good advice for parents. Barbara, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. This is Mornings with Simi. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms. <laughs> 